pray together. Lord, your word is spirit and it is life. And we open up our hearts now to welcome Holy Spirit instruction, life-giving instructions. I pray for Dr. Raj, God, that you will anoint him for service as a preacher. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Okay. In your bulletin, you'll find this sheet of paper. I want you to take it out and take a look at it for a second. You'll find on one side, you've got uh, the text for today's sermon, which is Micah 5. And on the other side, there's a bunch of notes. You got it? Okay, now, I know that we don't usually do this, and some of you are looking at that and, you know, getting a bit nervous. Uh, But I would like to assure you that... uh, Wait, let me press this. Yes, don't panic, okay? Because it's not that complicated. I will walk you through the thing. And... um, but at the end of the day, this is going to be a slightly heavier sermon than usual, so you'll need to muster up all of your powers of brethren concentration to get through this with me. Okay, so here we go. So, um, all right, so um, I have this friend of mine, I'm in Bible school right now, I have a friend of mine in Bible school, let's call him John, and he was telling me about this time he had, was sharing the gospel with a friend of his, let's call him Lee. And, um, and so at the end of sharing the gospel, Lee asked him a question, and the question that he asked him was this. Okay, so I think I understand all this, you know, Jesus and gospel thing, and I think that I can believe that. But before I make any commitment, what exactly do I need to give up in order to follow Jesus? And that's a good question. Um, And so John and I were talking about this for a while, and we couldn't really decide on what the appropriate answer would be, because on one hand, you know that part of the answer is nothing, right? Because it, salvation is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did for us on the cross, and all that we do is accept that by faith. And yet, on the other hand, I mean, the question was, what do I need to do in order to follow Jesus? And the answer to that is not nothing. I mean, we don't just say a prayer, you know, the sinner's prayer, and then go on to back to our lives as usual, right? There's something that needs to change, something that we need to give up. But what exactly is it? Is it you have to give up other religions, which is true. You need to give up sin, which is true. But, but, but is that it? What, if this question was asked to you by someone who is, you were sharing the gospel with, um, what, what, what would you answer? And so we still didn't get an answer at the end of that, but this is something for you to, this is a question that you need to be clear about, not only because you want to be ready to answer the question when somebody else asks you, but because it's a question that you and I, as believers in Christ, need to answer every day, do we not? You know, how, how do we follow Christ every day? And so, um, today what I'm going to do is we're going to get part of the answer to that question from Micah chapter 5, verse 10 to 16. Now, that actually raises another question. I mean, to some of you may be wondering, you know, wait a minute, what has Micah got to do with following Jesus in the first place? Because if you're thinking, okay, Micah is a prophet and he's in the Old Testament and we are following Jesus who's in the New Testament and, and they don't connect And I want to argue that that's not true, that there is a way in which Micah and the Old Testament prophets speak to us in our New Testament following of Jesus. And so that's the two things that I want to do today in this sermon. So one is, I'm going to try and answer, you know, what do I have to give up in order to follow Jesus? And I'll do that closer to the end. But before we get there, uh, I hope to make clear, you know, what Micah has to do with us following Jesus. So today you get two sermons for the price of one, right? 
So uh, let's just go through a couple of things first. Um, Pastor Kokfa has already done this two times before, but this is important because it connects to the text that we're looking at. So let's just remember a couple of things, you know, where Micah fits in the entire Bible. So God in the Exodus brings the people out of Egypt and forms the nation of Israel, right? And Israel lasts as one nation for about 500, 600 years, and then it splits up into two nations, a northern nation called which remains uh, called Israel, and a southern nation, which is called Judah. And so both of these proceed for a while, and then the northern nation is exiled by Assyria, and then the southern nation, about 120 years later, is exiled by Babylon. And after that, after about 70 years, they're restored to a kind of smaller, weaker Israel that carries on for a couple of hundred years until the New Testament time of Jesus. And so where does Micah fit in the Bible? It's around here. Um, somewhere around the time that the northern kingdom gets taken away, but kind of before the southern kingdom um, is, is exiled. Okay, so that's where we are. And so what does actually Micah say? And again, this is something that we've said a couple of times before, but it's worth repeating in that Micah talks about judgment and then talks about salvation and then about judgment and then about salvation and then about judgment and about salvation. Three times. Now, this doesn't mean that it's going to happen three times in sequence. It's just that he talks about judgment and then salvation, but he act, looks at it from different points of view. And so that's you know, Micah's message. And today we're in chapter number five, where really we're looking at what the salvation that Micah prophesied will look like. Right, so what's going to happen now is I'm going to read through the text of Micah chapter five, the whole chapter, and uh, I'd like you to look at the printout, because so that we're looking at the same version as we read the text. Now, I know that this is a tough text, and what I don't want you to do is kind of get stuck in little places here and there, you know, wondering what it's about. What I'd like you to do is just kind of follow through the entire text with me and get a feel for what the whole thing is about. And then later we'll go back and try to, you know, take it apart in little pieces. Okay, so here we go. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel in the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up to the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, 
I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Um, this is the word of the Lord, and it can be confusing. Um, we're going to go through the text in a couple of minutes, but before that, I just want to go through three quick tips on how to read Micah without getting confused, and I hope that especially those of you who are doing Micah, you know, on your own or in your cell group will find some of this helpful, right? So three quick tips, how to read Micah without getting confused. Okay, tip number one, remember that Micah is written in poetry. Now, wait a minute, how do you know that it's written in poetry? Um, well, the easiest way is for you to pick up your Bible, you hold it about an arm's length away from you, and then you look at it, and just look at the way that it's printed. And it's, you know, it's kind of short little lines with lots of white space in between. But why do they do that? The printers of your Bible printed it that way to signal to you that it is poetry. And, but, but why does this matter? We know Why do you need to... Um, okay, wait a minute. So if you compare that, you just turn back a couple of pages and you look at the book of Jonah, the way that it's printed, you can see that it is different. It's printed in kind of solid blocks of text that take up the entire page. So that kind of shows you the difference that Micah is written mostly in poetry and Jonah is written mostly in not poetry, except for that chapter number two that you can see in the middle there that is printed like poetry. So why does this matter? Um, it matters because poetry tends to be symbolic. And if you don't remember that, and if you're looking at the book of Micah and you're trying to figure out what every little detail means, you're going to get confused. Okay, so that's you know, point number one. You know, remember that Micah is poetry. Point number two, remember that Micah is written in oracles. Now, you may or may not have heard, about, heard the term oracle before. And what an oracle means is one oracle is one unit of prophecy. One time when Micah gives a prophecy on one occasion. And the thing is that one oracle, one unit of prophecy may or may not be connected to the next unit of, of uh, prophecy, which is also found within the book of Micah. So, so the, thing, the reason why this matters, uh, and I'll get to that in a second, how do you know where one oracle begins and the other one ends? Well, one way that you can know is, you see those kind of little bold headings in your Bible that tell you, that tells you, that breaks up the book of Micah into little sections? Usually they're there to tell you where one oracle begins and another oracle um, ends. And one other way that you can look is, you can see the way that even within those sections, you see some bits where you've got regular lines, and then there's this big space, and then there's more regular lines, and then a big space. Now, why is that in there? It's not there because the guy who was typing your Bible, you know, kind of fell asleep on the keyboard and, and pressed the enter button. Um, it's there to signal to you that this is where one oracle ends and another oracle begins. Now, why does this matter? Why do you need to keep this in mind? Because if you don't remember that, if you go through the whole of one chapter, like, you know, one of your Bible reading programs that says, read chapter one, then read chapter through. If you go through that whole chapter and you don't recognize that this is a couple of different oracles that are next to each other, you're going to think, what's wrong with this Micah guy? You know, he's kind of schizophrenic and he keeps changing topic. And the reason is because he is changing topic. He is talking about different things. So that's something that you want to keep in mind. And last tip. Um, keep in mind that Micah is written not necessarily in sequence. The things that Micah prophesies don't necessarily need to be fulfilled in that sequence. Now, how do you know this? Um, Micah 4.10, it talks about 
the exile to Babylon, which actually occurs in about you know, 597, 586 BC. And then later on in Micah, he talks about the Assyrian attack on uh, Israel, which actually happens in about um, you know, 701 BC. And so what that means is that sometimes the earlier parts of Micah talk about later events, and later parts of Micah talk about earlier events. Now, this is important. Why, why does this matter? Because if you don't keep this in mind, if you don't remember that Micah is not written in sequence, you're going to end up like one of these guys. Uh, you remember these guys, Harold Camping, you know, two years ago? And the thing is, throughout the church history of the church, we've always had this. Some bunch of Christians or another will look through the Bible, you know, add up the numbers and say, aha, now the world is going to end, or now the world is going to end. And they've always been wrong, you know, simply because they haven't kept in mind that the Bible doesn't necessarily give us a sequential prediction of what's going to happen next. And so even now, you know, if you walk into a Christian bookstore or something, you'll find a whole bunch of books with scary covers that talk about prophecy, and some of them are not necessarily reliable. So you want to be a little bit cautious about that. Okay, good. We've kind of got that out of the way. Three big things to keep in mind when you read Micah. It's poetry, it's oracles, and it's not necessarily in sequence. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to go through Micah chapter 5. And remember Micah chapter 5, it's a part of Micah where he's talking about what salvation looks like. And there's four big sections, four big oracles that we'll go through sequentially. Um, the first one about uh, verse 1 to 5, the second one verse 5 to 6, the third one 7 to 9, and the fourth one 10 to 16. But we'll kind of rush through the first three, and really I want to focus on the last one, uh, verse 10 to 16. And after that, we'll try and, and answer the question that I began with, you know, what do I need to give up in order to follow Jesus? Okay, so the first oracle, uh, when the king comes in Micah chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now this connects to the things that uh, Pastor Kokfai spoke about just uh, one week ago. This connects to the earlier part of chapter 4, which talks about now a present time of distress that Israel is going to go through at, during the time of Micah. But then, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the nations of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So even though during Micah's time, Israel is going to go through a time of distress, there's going to be a king who will come. And you guys recognize this passage. You see where it is quoted in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2, when after Jesus is born, um, Herod inquires where the Christ is to be born. And the wise men say to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. And from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people in people Israel. And so this is a part of Micah that we all kind of recognize as something that points to Jesus. But we'll kind of talk a little bit more later about what that means. And so going down further from there. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock, the king, in the strength of the Lord. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And so when the king comes, he's going to reunify Israel that has been split up into these different little nations. God's people will be reunited as one flock, and this king that is coming is going to be the peace of those people. Now, Paul in the New Testament pulls this text or the language from this text 
when he talks about what Jesus does for the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 11 to 22. At one time, you Gentiles, at one time you were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who were far off have been brought near. The rest of the brothers have been gathered, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And so Paul in the New Testament looks back at the language of Micah 5 and uses that to describe how now in Jesus, the king that has come, he's brought together the people of God as one flock and has granted the people of God peace. And so that's the first part, you know, Micah chapter 5, uh, verse 1 to 5. And so we'll go on to the next one, Micah chapter 5, verse 5 to 6. And so in this bit, um, the first line goes, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. And this is Micah talking about an event that happens in about 701 BC. And that's, uh, it's the details of that in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. But and we're not going to read the whole thing, but it's an interesting episode in the life of Israel. So I want to just kind of give you the Raj version of that history. And so what happens is, okay, you remember that Israel and Judah were in a split into two nations, right? And around that time, in the middle of the 8th century, you've got this huge monster um, empire up to the north, Assyria. And Assyria expands under this king called Tiglath-Pileser III. And the policy that he institutes is this. So Assyria kind of goes around bullying all the little nations around it. And basically it says, you give me tribute. And the smaller nations say, fine, okay, and we'll give you tribute. And that goes on for a while. They give annual payments of money for some time. But if at any point one of the little nations around says, no, we're not going to give tribute. So Tiglath-Pileser III brings you know, his entire Assyrian army, wallops the entire nation, takes off the, uh, you know, the, the, the elite of the nation into exile, and then governs it directly and takes money from that nation directly. And so that's the policy that's been going on for a while. And now in about 720 BC, there, the, the king of Israel is Hosea, and he looks up and he sees that the new king in Assyria is this guy called um, uh, Salamanasur V. And so Hosea looks up at this guy and thinks, you don't scare me. This guy's not as strong as the king before him. So you know what? I'm not going to give you tribute. And so Salamanasur the fifth says, fine, boys, get him. And then the entire Assyrian army rolls into, in, into Israel and you know, destroys everything and takes everybody off into exile. And so while this is happening, Judah, which is right next door, escapes. But the king in Judah, Ahaz, watches this happen and says, okay, I think it would be a good idea to continue giving tribute. And so he does. And so this continues for a couple of more years until the next king comes in Judah, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah looks up and again, this is this different king in Assyria, now Sennacherib. And so Hezekiah thinks, uh, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to give you tribute. And so Sennacherib goes, fine. No, boys, get him. And then again, one more time, the whole... Assyrian war machine rolls down, you know, and, and cities fall left and right like dominoes and comes down. And then Hezekiah hides inside Jerusalem, inside the fort of Jerusalem. And he's desperate because Sennacherib and his huge army is all around it, kind of making fun of him and, and, uh, and, and mocking um, Hezekiah in his palace. And so Hezekiah prays through Isaiah to God to deliver him. And God 
does. And you hear the, and you read about this in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35 to 36. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And uh, that continues. So this was the, the siege by Assyria of Jerusalem. And this is prophesied by Micah uh, sometime before that. And he goes, when the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Now this term, the seven, seven shepherds and eight princes of men, is a common formula that just refers to human agents of God's uh, activity in the world. So seven shepherds and eight uh, princes of men that shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. You know, earlier it said that God, when the king comes, he will be the shepherd to Israel. Well, now king, the king is also going to shepherd Assyria, but with the sword, in a kind of ironic kind of use of that term. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. And so that's the deliverance from Assyria that happens in about 701 BC, which is talked about in this third part of Micah chapter 5. Okay, now, okay, with that out of the way, I can speak a bit more slowly now. Um, I'm going to talk about this last bit, okay, which is uh, chapter 5, verse 10 to 16, the remnant purified. And now, uh, sorry, oh, wait a minute, I'm not yet there. Third part, okay, sorry guys. <laughs> it's a third part, verse 7 to 9, the remnant restored. Um, then the remnant of Jacob shall be, and this is, this particular term, the remnant of Jacob, it's, it's a term that's used repeatedly in Isaiah and is used in other places in Micah and the prophets as well. And it speaks about this small group of the people of God who will be preserved even throughout the time of judgment. And what it says about the remnant is, and then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. God's people will be in the midst of many others. And they will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man or wait for the children of man. So like dew, they'll be bringing blessing. Like showers of rain, they'll be bringing blessing to an agricultural land. But, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, it treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all of your enemies shall be cut off. So not only does the remnant of God's people bring judgment, bring blessing to the many peoples it is among, it also brings judgment to the many peoples it is among. Now what does this mean? Um, it's a vague enough prophecy that I can't say with confidence exactly what it refers to. And like the image that uh, Pastor Kokfai used last week, this is probably one of those things that the Bible talks about in layers, in a couple of different fulfillments that can take place in different times, in different ways. But at least one of the ways in which it appears to take place is this. When Paul talks about the Christian witness within the world now in the New Testament. But thanks be to God who, Christ, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God, of Him, knowledge of Him everywhere. For notice here both the blessing and the judgment that the people of God bring. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to another a fragrance from life to life. So who is sufficient for these things. 
And so in some way or the other, God's people, the remnant of God's people, who will be distributed among the many peoples, will bring blessing and they will also bring judgment. And so now, finally, you know, we're getting to Micah chapter 5, the last oracle. And so, so far what we've looked at is Micah in chapter 5, he's talked about what salvation will look like. And he's looked, talked about what that salvation will look like in several ways. In verse 1 to 5, the king comes and the king reunites the people of God and the king brings peace to the people of God. In verse 5 to 6, the king comes and he delivers from the attack of the Syrians. He gives deliverance from, you know, all of the enemies of the people of God. And verse number 7 to 9, the new people of God who are restored after that through the activity of the king become a channel of blessing and of judgment to the other people that are around them. And all of this is great stuff. And then Micah in verse 10 to 16 kind of turns everything on his head and he says something that's totally surprising. And what he says is this, in that day declares the Lord when the king comes and this is what God is going to do. I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots. And the people of Israel now hearing this are thinking, good God, what do you mean? I mean, horses and chariots are in that time the best possible military hardware. That is the means through which you're going to be defending your nation. And when God comes, he's going to destroy all of our weapons. And I will cut off the cities in your land and I'll throw down all of your strongholds. Wait, wait, what do you mean you're going to destroy our cities and our strongholds? Remember what happened to Hezekiah when, when, when Assyria, when Sennacherib attacked? It, within that society, when you know, you've got huge rampaging armies, they're always running around invading somebody or the other. Your cities, your fortified towns are the only real place of defense. Most people, for most of their lives, they'll be farming out in the fields, living outside of the city. But when one of these you know, big armies comes along, everybody runs, runs and seeks refuge within the city. And then you kind of roll up your gate and then you wait for the army outside to starve or get tired or get bored and then go home. But when God comes, the deliverance that he's going to give to Israel is this. I'm going to destroy your horses and chariots and I'm going to cut off the cities of your land and throw down all of your strongholds. What kind of salvation is this? And I will cut off the sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. Now, all the while, all the way from the time of Joshua until the end of Israel, there's always been this persistent problem in Israel of the absorption of Canaanite occultism, the surrounding nations, the, the magic and the superstition and the fortune telling by them. And now, God says, I'm going to just cut that all off. I'm going to remove that from among you. And verse 13 onwards, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. And this is something that, again, you know, Pastor Kofi spoke about a couple of weeks ago, the religions of the surrounding Canaanites that the Israelites had always been tempted by and always been struggling with. And now, when the king comes, he's going to get rid of all of that. And so there will be no other religion, no other occultism, no other superstition, no other weapons, no other defenses that Israel will be permitted when God comes and saves them. And so that's what salvation will look like when God comes. 
the expectation that Micah gives to the people of Israel is that when God comes, he will cut off every other thing, every other weapon, every other city, every other defense, every other source of recourse, every other way to tell the future, every other power that we may look towards. And he's going to cut off every other source of security. Now what's, if that is Israel's hope at the time of Micah, what, what does that have to do with us, with us following Jesus? Now we've talked about this again a little bit earlier today, but this is the message of all the prophets, not just of Micah. And they all say basically about the same thing. They say that you will face judgment because of this and this and this, but a king will come and then the salvation that he brings will look like this. And in fact, this is not just Micah, but every prophet. So if you look at Amos, he says, you will face judgment because of the injustice that you have, uh, that you have inflicted among the poor. The king will come, and then the new salvation that he brings will look like a renewed nation that does not have any, of injust any injustice. So Hosea says, you will face judgment because of your infidelity to the covenant in the way that uh, Hosea's wife was unfaithful to him. And yet a king will come, and when he comes, the salvation that he brings will be a restoration of that faithfulness to you. And so Isaiah says, you will face judgment because of your infidelity to the covenant and because of your injustice to the poor. And a king will come, and when the king comes, he's going to look like a suffering servant. And the salvation that he brings will look like this. It will look like a renewed heavens and earth where the lion will lie down with the lamb. And Jeremiah, who comes after the exile in the, northern, in the north and south, he goes... You, will, you have faced judgment because of all the things that the other prophets have told you. But a king will come and the salvation that he brings will look like this. It will look like God's good plan for you, for your salvation, not for your destruction. And so Ezekiel says, you, are, you have faced judgment because of your sin. A king will come and the salvation he is going to bring is going to look like the new heavens and the new earth. And so again and again, it's the same message that all of the prophets bring. But if that's what they say, all of the prophets speak of a king that's going to come and the way that salvation will look like after him. Does that sound familiar? Because the New Testament looks at Jesus and consistently identifies with him, with this king that all of the prophets speak about. So at his birth, Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, now after Jesus was born, Herod asked, where is he to be born? The king of the Jews. And when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the people sing in John 12, verse 12 to 15, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And when Jesus is crucified, that plaque above him, that's what's the inscription that's put on that. It reads, John chapter, 12, John chapter 19, verse 16 to 19, it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So over and over, the New Testament, in our Gospels, it looks back at what the prophets say about the coming king, and that they say this Jesus is that coming king. But we know that, right? I mean, coming into Christmas, every Christmas, um, we sing this whole bunch of songs that keep calling Jesus king. And so you've got joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. You know, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And um, Noel, 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 born is the king of Israel. And so you hear this everywhere in every shopping mall you go to over this last, you know, like two months already, and it's going to continue to come to its pinnacle over the next couple of weeks. And we keep singing off Jesus as this, the coming king. And yet, we often don't connect him to the 
king that's prophesied within one third of the Old Testament. And if this is so, if this Jesus is our king, then the kind of salvation that Micah speaks about, the kind of salvation that the prophets speak about, that's our salvation. That's what it's like for us to be following Jesus. The prophets in, in images, in types and shadows, they tell us what following Jesus is like. And so what that means is this, that if you go to the Old Testament and you're looking for what it says about Jesus, it's not like finding raisins in your oatmeal. It's not like, you know, this whole bunch of fibrous, thick, you know, tasteless stuff. And every now and then you find a little bit of a, you know, this burst of sweetness. Ah, you find a Jesus verse. You find a Jesus verse. You find a, a little Jesus verse. That's not the way that it works. All of the prophets, in all that they speak about, point towards, in shadows, in types, in symbolic language, but point to Jesus. And so we kind of come back to the question that I began with. with what do we say in, in our evangelism, in our, you know, in our, when the Lees ask you, you know, okay, fine, so this Jesus is fine. He dies for me, I accept his sacrifice, and then I get saved, right? Then I got to do, and I don't got to do anything. What, what else does Jesus ask of me? What do I need to give up? in order to follow Jesus? And the answer is this. The answer is not nothing. The answer is not, you only need to give up other religions. You only need to give up your sin. The answer is this. If Micah is right, coming to Jesus, following Jesus means this, giving up every other source of security. And that's scary. Um, what does that look like? What, what, what are the implications of that? in our lives. And, and I want to make a little distinction here between, until now, I've, I, I think I, I've, I can speak quite confidently about this is what the Bible says, this is what Micah says, but from now onwards, th these are my conjectures, these are my implications, these are the my heart, and they, you may or may not agree with me, they may or may not be right, but this is what I think it means when we give up every other source of security. In part, it changes, okay, I'm going to give you three things, but the first thing that I'm going to talk about is, in part, it changes the way that we evangelize, the way that we speak of the gospel to other people. The easiest way to speak of the gospel and get somebody to, you know, say the sinner's prayer is this. Tell them that, you know, it's like this. It costs you nothing. It's, it's cheap. You don't want to do anything. You just got to say the prayer and that's it. And it's an easy way to speak of the gospel. It's an easy way to get people to say the sinner's prayer and then you can tell everybody, you know, I've, I've done my job. But how does that compare to the way that Jesus calls his disciples? In uh, Luke chapter 14, you know, there's this whole crowd that's around Jesus and he looks at them and he goes, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, if you desire to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. How many believers have you known like this who have started off a commitment to Christ not knowing what they were getting themselves into? And as you know, the thorns and thistles grow up, um, their faith fades and they fall away because they haven't understood the cost. They haven't counted the cost before they got started. And this is not just the way that Jesus evangelized. It's the way that Jesus commands us to share the gospel. 
this is the great commission, right? And we all remember the first couple of lines. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't stop there. And the next line goes, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is what it means to fulfill the great commission. It means to talk off discipleship, to teach the people that we speak to about what it means to follow and obey our king. And that discipleship, that means it costs something. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go through this book uh, in the church, and I'm so glad we are because it takes this idea and it, you know, runs with it, uh, and, and I'm really looking forward to this. And so I, I know that Pastor Kokfa has asked some of the cell group members, cell groups, to consider using this in your, um, in your cell groups, and, and I would add my voice to that. It's great stuff, you know, so if you haven't thought about it, do think about doing this uh, as the whole church does it in a couple of weeks' time. The second big implication, not just about how we evangelize, but how much we're able to risk. Um, you know, throughout our lives, we're faced with choices and we need to take risks, right? And risking something means giving up or allowing to become vulnerable, something that is of value to us. And how much we're able to risk really depends on how much security we put on those things. And so the more security that you place in a certain thing, it's more difficult to, to risk that. And so what does it look like, you know, when your security is in God and you're okay to risk and you find it easier to risk? Um, I, I find the story of this guy um, inspiring. Uh, this is, do, do you know this guy? Anybody? No. This is Francis Chan, um, quite a prominent pastor in the United States. And one of the things that he has done consistently, he's lived an extremely simple life. He doesn't make a lot of money, although he sells a lot of books. And he has, you know, repeatedly adopted or supported a bunch of other children who is brought into his family, taken care of them, you know, put them through school or even to higher education. And the outlay, the amount of risk that he takes financially in order to do that, people ask him, you know, uh, there was an interview a couple of months ago where he was asked, why would you do this? You know, you're using so much money on these kids that are not yours. And as a result of you doing this now, you're risking your retirement, your future, the education of your kids in a couple of years' time. Why would you do that? And, and Francis Chan's answer was this. You mean if it's my children that need the money later, that's an emergency. But when other kids need it right now, that's okay. I don't need to give that up. I don't need to risk for that. God will take care of me. My security is in him. My children's security is in him. And so I'm prepared to risk that by supporting other people now. And that's, and that leaves me speechless. How do you, how do you respond to that? Um, I, I, I don't have the courage to do that, but, but he does. And his security is in somewhere else. And I want to be like him. A third big implication is where we try and seek security, not just where we, what we're willing to risk, what we're willing to give up, but where we try and get it in the first place. Now, um, you know, we don't talk about this very often, but I mean, let's face it, you know, um, guys, we are rich, right? Are we not? As, as a church, as a group of people, as, you know, upper middle class, English speaking, you know, 
Chinese, well, okay, you guys, not me, but Chinese people in Singapore, um, most of us are rich. We're, we're not like super rich, we're not like Sentosa Cove's rich, right? Okay, but <laughs> we're we are rich, we have more than what we need. And when we have that means of resources, we, we find a way to, to secure that, to protect that, you know, through your investments and your savings and all of those things. And all of that is fine, all of that is wise, all of that is right. God doesn't call every one of us to be like the rich young ruler, you know, sell everything and, you know, go and follow him. That's not what's required and that's fine. But if truly our security is in God and our security is different from the security of your friends who don't believe in God, your, the other people in Singapore, the other people like us who don't believe in God, if the way that we invest, the way that we save, the way that we give, if the way that we use our money is exactly the same as them, our security isn't more in God than theirs is. Is, is that harsh? It's harsh, but is, is that not true? If the way that we use our money, if the way that we find our security is no different from the world, then our security, our source of security, the place that we seek our security, is really no different from the world. So, so what does that mean? You know, how much do you need to give up? How much do you need to tithe? How much do you need to offer? How much do you need to change the way that you invest? I don't know. I, I can't answer those questions. But I do know this. If it's exactly the same as the non-believer, it's not enough. And we need to find our security somewhere else. Paul writes to Timothy, for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So he's saying, tell the rich, don't find your security in the riches but in God. But what does that look like? What does it look like when we find our security in God and not in riches? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so how do we do this? You know, I've talked about if we really put our security in God, if we allow Him to take away all of our other sources of security, where our evangelism is going to be different, the way that we risk is going to be different, the way that we seek security is going to be different. But, but how do we make that happen? How do we turn our hearts so that we're able to do that? Um, I, have two, I have two points the first is this, it begins with a recovery of our vision of Jesus as our king. It means as we go into Christmas, every time that we sing of Jesus as, as that coming king, we remember what that means, that that is the king that the prophets speak of who will come and take away every other source of security. It means remembering him as the one who has the right to cut off our defenses, cut off our cities, cut off the occult, cut off the religion, cut off everything else. Because this is not just a king that comes and says, I want everything. This is the king who came to die for us. And if it's the king who gave his all for us, he's worth giving our all. He deserves our all. He has the right to ask of our, call, of our all. And if we think of him in that way more often. If we remember him as king more often, not just as someone who died for me, not just my substitute, but my king, it will make it a little bit easier um, to give up our security and other things. And so that's part of the answer. 
And I've said that that's part of the answer because I'm going to number point number two and I put a little question there because I, I don't know. I'm getting ready now to, in about a year's time, for, to leave Singapore and go into, into full-time missions. I'm in Bible school right now. I'll finish Bible school and then go into, uh, into full-time missions. And as I'm getting ready to plan all of those things out, I kind of do everything and I realize how scary it is. You know? um, I've had people, you know, some people say, you know, wow, that's so brave of you, you know, to, to, leave, to give up security and go. And they have no idea what they're talking about because it scares the pants off me. Um, I wish I could say, you know, my security in God and is in God. And so these things don't frighten me, but it's not true. It does frighten me very much. And I don't know what to do with that. And and I know that part of the reason is, is remembering the scriptures, and, and it helps. But another part of the of the answer, I, I don't know what it is, and 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 that's why I'm I'm going to have to ask you guys. Um, I mean, th those of you who are older than me, the the, the singings and the shings and the cockfires and the and and, there, and all of you, you know, um, I'll I'll need your help to show me what it means to to not find my security in these things too to reassure me when I'm frightened about you know, the loss of these things. And as a church, as we look at each other, can we learn to, to help one another? I mean, on our own, we're weak and our hearts you know, go astray. But let's look at each other, let's strengthen one another, and let's say, find our security in God and in Him alone. And let these other things crumble away to dust. Help me, and, and let's help each other. I'm going to end here and, and I ask that you stand up and would you pray with me? <coughs> Let's pray. God, you have saved us. You've died for us. Help us to understand what that means. By your Holy Spirit, help us to understand what that means. Help us to understand what it means to follow you truly. Follow you the way that you've called us. Help us to follow you as our King. We see your call to give up every other source of security, and we can't. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you do that work in us, that you would cut off everything that entangles us, that you'd cut off everything that grips so strongly upon our hearts, and it allow us, Father, to find our security in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. The service is over.